Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. Good morning, good morning. If you have a Bible, uh, you can open it to 2 Samuel chapter 5. We'll actually be doing the whole chapter. That's why Joel read the whole thing for us this morning, so we could familiarize ourselves with it. 2 Samuel chapter 5. But before we open God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of Samuel, your prophets, Lord, who recorded your faithfulness throughout the history of your people. We pray, Lord, that as we consider that now, that uh, we would understand what it teaches us about the Lord Jesus, what it teaches us about the household of God, Lord, and what it teaches us about the righteousness uh, of your Son and, and the righteousness that we receive through him. We thank you and we praise you in his name, and amen. Now, this is the... Uh, I think 49th sermon in this series. So it offers an opportunity to stop for a moment and try to think back, what is this whole series been about? Where are we going with this? Why are we doing, of all things, Samuel? Now, Samuel, of course, was one book originally, but they broke it into two parts simply because of the scrolls, the size of the scrolls. So this huge book about King David and about Samuel and about Saul, about the coming uh, the beginning of the throne of Israel. What, what is all of this been about? Well, the point of this whole series is to understand the rise and fall of David's dynastic house. Okay? God, God said that a son would come and crush the head of Satan and save his people and save the world. And it appeared very much like that person was going to be David. David is great in the household of God. David has a heart after God. There is no one like David, I defy you to find anyone in Scripture as, as mighty and as wonderful and as God-fearing as David. And yet, and yet his house fell. Now, in Deuteronomy, Yahweh promised to exile Israel for ongoing disobedience and idolatry. He also promised, however, to restore Israel if they turned back to the Lord. So Deuteronomy is full of all of these promises. If you obey me, this is the good things that it will come to you. If you disobey me, these are the bad things that will come to you. But after that, if you return to me, I will return to you. Now, the compilers of what they call the Deuteronomistic history trace these promises through the history of Israel. God did fulfill all the promises, both good and bad. And the reason was that at the time that they compiled this history, the books of Judges or the books of Joshua all the way through 2 Kings, the reason they did this is because Israel was in exile. Israel was wondering, what happened to us? What happened to our household? What happened to our throne? What happened to our temple? What happened to our people? What happened to our God? And so the prophets compiled this history to tell them what happened. That's what it's all about. Here is why you are in exile. And the reason is because they want to show that God will fulfill his promises of exile, and likewise will fulfill his promises of restoration if they return to the Lord. Now, David is crucial to that history. He is one of the first characters uh, in, in Scripture that shadow this idea about Christ being Israel himself. David is Israel. What happens to David is what happens to Israel. If it happens to David, it happens to Israel. Jesus is the same way. Jesus is Israel. So when he, Jesus' life as he's living it, if you go back and you look at the history of, of Israel, Jesus' life matches the history of Israel. And it's the same thing with David. David is like Israel. It, when he obeys God, God blesses him, and God upholds him, and God blesses him even despite his failures. But what he is doing is, is 
God also will curse him for his disobedience and his rejection and his idolatry. David is crucial to understanding the history of blessing and cursing because in his life we see both. We see a great deal of blessing and a great deal of judgment and cursing. But remember, judgment and mercy always go together. God never just judges us without some mercy in it, <laughs> right? Because if there was no mercy in it, no one would stand. Man would have just been wiped off the face of the earth in Genesis chapter 4, and that would have been the end of the story. And it's the same with David. David continues because God is merciful, even in the face of his failures. And, and, and this is, you know, no matter what we say about David, despite him, God is faithful to him. God is always the faithful one. It says in verse 10 of chapter 5, for example, it says in verse 10, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The greatness of David is a gift of God. God gives it to him. Now, he may not always be perfect, obviously, but in, in his failure to be faithful to God, what we see is that God never fails to be faithful to him. The Lord is faithful to David, but David is not wholly faithful to Yahweh. For example, we read in verse 13 now. Verse 13 says, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Right? So even while God is blessing him, even while God is giving him the gift of glory, right, moving him from glory to glory, David is taking a bunch of things that do not belong to him. David has become a king who takes, just as Samuel said the kings would. He said, Israel, you want kings? Why? Because they're going, to, they're going to take from you. They're going to take your land. They're going to take your money. They're going to take your daughters. They're going to take your sons. They're going to take your chariots. They're going to take. And what we see is that even though God is giving and giving and giving to David, David still wants to take and take and take things that do not belong to him. Saul was a taker, and now we see that David is also a taker. And this taking is going to be his ruin. He is not satisfied. It's not enough what the Lord has given him. He wants more. And if one is good, two is better. If two is good, four is better. And on down the path David goes until it ruins his entire household. It says clearly in Deuteronomy 17, those are the laws for the kings. Do not multiply your wives. Don't do it, David. And David says, I will build my house my way. I will have as many wives as I want, and, and, and I will marry unbelievers. I will marry Gentiles, and we will have children together, and I'm going to fill and build my own house. And it's not what God wants him to do. Now, this often happens to us. God told us, be fruitful and multiply. We say, okay, we will do it. And we go out and we come up with all kinds of ways to be fruitful and multiply that are not what God ordered us to do. Right? Numbers do not equal health. A 5,000-person church is not healthier than a 50-person church simply because they have more people. And here, we're going to step on some landmines for a moment. Right? We, we have this trite saying in the household of God that children are always a blessing. David is going to demonstrate that that is patently not true. Okay? All children are supposed to be a blessing. Okay? So a man who goes out and has 50 kids is not necessarily being fruitful because that fru right, if they're all unbelievers. If you have 50 kids who are a terror, if you raise little hellions and they're twice the sons of Satan you are, you're not building the kingdom of God. That's not fruitfulness. Okay? There are a great number of people's children who are a curse, not only to them but to us. And this is why parenting right, is a timed event 
with eternal significance. It's a timed event with eternal significance. In your house, your house is supposed to be the place where your children learn right, to be upright and, and to walk in the fear of the Lord and to obey him. And, and if, if you're doing that, you're being fruitful. Right? We, we live in this world that is, or we live in the Christian community that rejects the world and, and barrenness is a blessing. We say, we're, what we're going to do is we're going right, to buy two minivans, we're going to fill it with kids, because that's fruitfulness. It's the quality of the fruit that matters, not the number. Sheer volume is not what God is going for. David thinks he's filling his household, and what he's filling it with is, is, are his destruction. He's filling it with his own destruction. And many parents are doing the same thing. Many churches are doing the same thing. Let's go out there and be as seeker-sensitive as possible and just get butts in the seats. And, and what you're doing is you're making a synagogue of Satan that way. It's not numbers. It's quality. It's not numbers. It's, it's the health of the fruit. Okay? A, a field of ivy and a field of cabbages are, are equally green and luscious. But one can feed you and one cannot. Right? We're not just told to have green fields. We're told to bear fruit. And those two things are not the same. David's house will not stand. It is, at root, rotten. The best that men can do is David. Again, I defy you. Who's better than David? And yet we see here that at root, he is rotten. He is disobedient. He is adding wives. He is not obeying the the word of God. This is why his tree is cut down. The, uh, a contemporary of the Deuteronomistic prophets, the prophet Isaiah, has this to say in Isaiah 11. Turn with me to Isaiah 11, and we'll reread something interesting in verses 1 through 5. It says this in Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Now, that's what this series is about. Why is it that, <laughs> that the stu- it's become a stump? How did the tree of David become a stump? What does it mean that a new tree is going to rise from the old tree, and it is going to be righteous, and it's going to stand forever, and it's going to bear fruit? The books of Samuel are about this. It's about how David's house took root and grew up strong, but at its taproot, it was rotten, and so the Lord cut it down and burned it. Daniel chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found their shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. There is a tree that will fill the earth, and it will give shade to everyone. It will give food to everyone, and that fruitful tree is the Lord Jesus. 
The books of Samuel show how David's tree was planted, how it took root, how it grew big and strong, but it also shows that at the taproot it was rotten and that eventually it would come down. The failure of David to obey the Lord fully is his downfall. Substituting godly fruitfulness with selfish gain is not the way to the kingdom of heaven. What Israel needs is a man who will obey the Lord fully. That's what, he need. that's what Israel needs. That's what you need. That's what I need. The Lord will use that man the same way that he used David to build a house and defend it in the name of the Lord God. That is what the Lord is going to do. That, that, when you get into 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we're going to read this story about how God grows David's house and makes it big and strong, the plan hasn't changed the person has. Right? It, what you find in, in 2 Samuel 5 is the Bible in miniature. You find man trying to be fruitful and happy apart from the rules of God and utterly fail, even though God blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses him. And what you see is the pattern that if we could just find a man who could do, who could do what the Lord asked him to do, go forth and obey me, and, and if you do, I will build your house and you will be a righteous tree that lasts forever. The plan is always the same. The person is the problem. David is the problem because David in his taproot is rotten. So what God needs is a man. He promises to send a man whose taproot will not be rotten. David's tree is going to be judged. It's going to be cut down. It's going to be burned. This in Jeremiah eleven sixteen isn't just true of David. It's true of the house of Israel. This is how they ended up in exile. It says, the Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. But God will, from that diminished stump, bring forth a new tree, one upon which all God's children will be grafted. And since Yahweh promised to cut down the tree of Israel in his judgment, he likewise promises to restore that tree in his mercy. If you are a rotten tree, if you are a branch that bears no fruit, he will cut you off and he will burn you. That's what he says in John chapter 15, and this is what he's talking about. He is the righteous tree, and if you're grafted into him, if you're in him, then you will bear fruit and you will last forever. And, and what David tries to do is, is be a, <laughs> a rotten, disgusting branch laying on the side of the road that tries to bear fruit all by itself in its own way. The Deuteronomistic history, spanning from Joshua to the end of 2 Kings, is meant to give hope to those living in exile, to those sitting in the shadow of death, to those whose houses are in disrepair, who know their taproot is rotten. One will arise to rescue us from David's disgraced house. Okay? And this is my question. This is, this is what it always comes down to. Is your house in disrepair? Is your taproot rotten? Are you living in the shadow of death? If you are, I have good news for you. There is a tree that has, that has taken root, it's rooted and grounded in love. It has grown up. It is expanding to cover the whole earth. And, and, and if you're grafted into him, you will bear fruit. And your taproot will be exchanged from a rotten one to one that will last forever. But if you don't need this, then the message is going to fall on hard ears. For those of us who know how rotten our tree is, there is good news. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, And I will pour out on the, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy. 
so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The fallen house of David will look upon the one they pierced, mourning as if it, as if it is a firstborn. Their mouths will be filled with pleas of mercy. When you behold the one that the Lord strikes down, right, when you look upon the one who's pierced, when you look upon the firstborn son that you slaughtered, when you look upon him and you recognize, yes, this was the righteous one. This is the one whose tree does not fall. This is the one who is building a house that will last forever. When you look upon him and you think that and you know that, then your mouth will be filled with pleas of mercy. And that's the only way. There's no other way. You can go out and you can try to build a house. You can try to plant a tree that lasts forever and it will fail. Now, a house and a tree. That's what we're going to talk about now. When we, when we turn to 2 Samuel 5, it's a house and it's a tree. That's what you need. You need a house and you need a tree. And, and if you think about Scripture, this is, this is always how it's working. It's, the authors of Scripture are always using illustrative devices to show the deeper meaning of the text. Right? The, the authors of Scripture use symbols like bread and wine. When you're holding bread and wine in your hands, what does it signify? It, it, right? it, 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 what it takes is very complex ideas, realities and truths about God, and it puts it in your hand so that you can behold it. Oh, this is what Jesus is like. He's like bread and he's like wine. And throughout 2 Samuel 5, that's what's going on here. What is, the, what, what is God like? He's like a house. Right? What is God like? He's like a tree. Right? What, what, are, what, are men, what are men like? Well, men are like houses and men are like trees. But there's a huge difference between the two, the two houses and the two trees. Houses are a motif that increase in frequency. Mentioned in 2 Samuel, once in chapter 1, four times in chapter 2, and five times in chapter 3. They're talking about houses as much as they're talking about brothers. One of the uses of, of the of this word house in, in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel is the reference to the civil war between uh, the houses of David and the houses of Saul. There was a civil war between these two households. The conflict is reser- resolved with the murder of Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Saul's house fails. David's house is growing stronger and stronger, according to chapter 3, verse 1. David's house is increasing and Saul's house is decreasing. Chapter, uh, chapters 5 through 8 follow a very tight pattern of warfare followed by house building, labor followed by Sabbath. This is creation symbolism. David is building a new creation. He is laboring to provide rest for Israel. And after every, after every time he goes out of the field and he's successful, what follows is house building. And this is um, creation symbolism. This is just like the first week. God worked for six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested. David is working and working and working, and every time he faithfully fulfills what God has told him to do, he gets to build his house. After labor comes rest. Now, this is a shadow of David's greater descendant, Jesus, who said in Hebrews 4 to provide the final rest for us. Right? Why did Jesus come? He came so that he could fight He came so that he could build. He came so that he could work. And at the end, what does he do? He gives us rest. That's what it says in Hebrews. So what we see here is is a pattern for Jesus' life in 2 Samuel 5. Conflict and rest. Battle, home building. 
That is the pattern. That's what Jesus did in the Gospels. Now, 2 Samuel 5 is full of revelation about how the redemptive plan is going to work. Yahweh said in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So back in the beginning of, of the books of Samuel, this is what God says. I'm going to build a house. Now, David is central to this plan. Abigail, David's wife, said to David specifically in 1 Samuel 25, 28, the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. In chapter 5, David takes his orders directly from Yahweh. He goes out fighting the Lord's battles, and because they are the Lord's battles, the Lord goes before David to give him victory. Now, if you open (laughs) commentaries, modern ones, and they're talking about the uh, balsam trees and there's this sound in the trees, people, uh, oh, it's just this wind. Right? That's all I heard. It was wind in order to cover the noise of his soldiers. Nonsense. The Lord sent a host of angels ahead of David. Okay? I, I, just, I always like to point out the supernatural stuff because we tend to reject it as moderns. But <laughs> the, David is fighting the Lord's battles. The Lord is already there. The Lord already knows who's going to win. The Lord already has troops on the ground. And David is participating in that. Okay? And when he participates in that and, and is victorious, his reward is house building. In chapter 5, David takes his orders directly from Yahweh. He does this twice. He goes out, he fights, and then he gets to build a house. Now let's look at some of these um, house-building projects that he's on. David's house wins the Civil War, right? That's what it it said in the end of chapter 4. And so the first thing that God does is starts to rebuild David's house. The first thing that he does for this is sends the elders of the tribes to David. They say to him, we are your bone and flesh. David, we are your bone and your flesh. Now, doesn't that seem like a weird thing to say? It seems like a weird thing to say. It sounds a little bit like what Adam said about his wife. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But this is how these things are supposed to work. You, this is a, an unusual phrase that is used in the Old Testament. And if you go and you find where the phrase is used, it tells you a little something about what's going on here. Now, if you go to Genesis chapter 29, Genesis 29, verses 13 to 14, we read this. Now, as soon as Laban heard the news about, about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob, said, uh, Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So here's that same phrase. He takes him into his house, and he says, You are my bone and you are my flesh. So the, this phrase is a phrase that you use when you're reconciling with distant family members, when you're unifying your household. This is the phrase that you're supposed to say. Oh, my bone and my flesh, right? When you see your estranged sibling or a long-lost cousin, somebody you haven't seen in a while, and you want to show uh, unity and you want to show oneness of of purpose and mission and love, you say, oh, my bone and my flesh. This is what the Hebrews did. That is why they say this to David. The household of Israel is being reconciled to itself after the end of the Civil War. Now, this phrase is also used in Judges chapter 9. This is what Abimelech said. He says, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, Which is better for you, 
that all 70 of the house of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you, remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, Here is our brother. The household of God is being fixed. It's being remodeled. The brothers in this household who were at war with one another are being reconciled. And that is what they mean by this phrase. This is the Lord God building back up the house of Israel after the end of the civil war. Now, they they move right into other symbolism that's very important. The elders call David a shepherd. This is the first direct reference to the king of Israel as a shepherd. Now, in Numbers 27, Moses selected Joshua to go out and come in, a, a phrase that means going out to battle, before Israel so, that he would, so they would not be like a sheep without a shepherd. So now Israel is using this phrase from their history about being bone and flesh. They also call him a shepherd because David is now the shepherd of a united Israel, one flock, one flock. He is the father. He is the one protecting and providing for the household of Israel now. So he is a greater Joshua. So what is a greater Joshua going to do? Well, a greater Joshua is going to go out and and whoop up on the last tribe still living amongst the Israelites, the Gibeonites. Now, you guys remember the Gibeonites. I love the Gibeonites. Uh, Joshua has invaded the land. The Gibeonites are like, oh, no. So they put on raggedy clothes, and they put on old sandals, and they get moldy bread, and they go to the Israelites and say, we've traveled from really far off. Make a covenant with us. So Israel makes a covenant with the Gibeonites, and they're like, ha-ha, actually, we're your neighbors. And, this, and, and they don't break this covenant with them, even though God told them to eradicate all these people. So David, who's called the shepherd of Israel, David, who is now the shepherd of a united Israel, the first thing he does is he goes out and he finishes the conquest of the land. Jerusalem is held by the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are not Israelites, and they need to go. So David goes up there. That's what this is all about. He's going to take the city from them. He's going to eradicate them from the land and finish the conquest. Because if you're going to build a a proper house, you need to find land first. And and, and that land has to be, right, it's got to be, you got to be able to build on it. And with the Gibeonites there, it's preventing Israel from being united in the whole land. Now, the Gibeonites foolishly mock David by saying the blind and the lame will ward you off. Now, the Hebrew here is actually really obscure. It's very difficult to understand. But one of two meanings are possible, and it kind of take your pick. Okay? Either, as we read from a contemporary Hittite text, this one I had to dig deep in the Internet for, while mustering and haranguing troops for battle, it was customary in the ancient Near East to place a blind woman and a lame man before the troops, demonstrating the fate of those soldiers who fail in their duty. If you go out and fail, you're going to be lame and blind like these two. So it's possible that that they were putting lame and blind people up on the walls and saying, David, you're going to be like these people if you come and attack us. That's one possibility. Okay, that's what the Midrash, an ancient Jewish commentary on this book, had to say. Um, But the other possibility, the one that seems more likely, is that the Gibeonites are simply flexing on David. Say, yeah, yeah, the blind and the lame could beat you, buddy. And, and this is why he goes on and calls them the blind and the lame. Yeah, I did beat you. So you must be blind and you must be lame. <laughs> they call themselves the blind and the lame, and so he calls them the blind and the lame. The Gibeonites, their time am, am, am amidst Israel has not taught them the important lesson that one ought not to put their faith in the strongholds of stone. 
They're in a mighty fortress in Jerusalem. And they say, ah, lame people could beat you, David. And David sends men up what is called now the Warren Shaft. It was discovered in 1867. It's an underground tunnel feeding in from the Gion Spring on a slope outside the east wall. One would have had to crawl through a very narrow tunnel and then ascend a vertical shaft that was several hundred feet. And this is where David sends his men, right? So up from the ground he arose with a mighty victory over his foes. There the Gibeonites are, snug in their little fortress, and all of a sudden, out of the hole where they get water, comes all these Israelites and stomps them and, and, and defeats them. It's quite a remarkable thing, and it's a shadow of what Christ is going to do. He's going to come out of the ground, suddenly, in a hole, <laughs> and he's going to strike down his enemies. David defeats them, and in chapter 3, uh, yeah, this is what was said was going to happen, back in chapter 3, verse 8. They said, David, you're going to defeat the, uh, these people, and that is exactly what he's done. Now, Zion is an interesting word because this is the first time in Scripture that it's used. Now, we've all heard this, right? Zion is Israel, isn't it? Zion is Jerusalem. Zion is Jerusalem in heaven. This is the various ways that the um, Old Testament and New Testament use the term. The, the latter books of the Old Testament use Zion to denote Jerusalem itself, sometimes the chosen people of God. In the New Testament, it's used... Uh, to signify the whole church, or, and sometimes the heaven, heavenly city. And, and what we see here is that this is where this term comes in, and, and, and it, it's going to gain meaning as the Bible goes. This is always how it works in Scripture. This word first appears here, and as it goes, it's going to become something that's full and rich of symbolism. Now, the rest at this point after, um, is very brief, but, but it's um, after the, his victory, let's go back to this pattern. David defeats the Gibeonites, and now what is he going to do? He's going to do some household building. So Haram, a Gentile king, sends workers and supplies to build David a literal house. So David has defeated his enemies, and now he gets to build a house. David then fulfills the cultural mandate to fill the earth, increasing his wives and concubines, filling his house with Jewish and Gentile offspring. David really is the father of a, of a mixed-race host, right? He has both Gentile offspring and Israelite offspring. He's building his house, obeying the command to be fruitful and multiply, but he's doing it like pagan kings, not like a king in Israel should, according to Deuteronomy 17. When God placed Adam in the garden, what did God tell him to do? He said, keep and guard this garden, okay? When, when God gives us a house, he expects us to protect it. So now that David has been victorious and he's been given Zion, now that he has built a house in Zion, what is, the, what is he going to be required to do? Well, if this is a, a, like a new creation pattern, the next thing that's going to happen is a snake is going to come and attack his garden. A snake is going to come and attack his house. Adam was told to guard and keep it. When Eve was attacked by the serpent, Adam did not inquire of the Lord. He did not protect what the Lord had given him. And he, and he listened to Satan instead of God. David seeks the Lord's guidance and defends his household against the Philistines. That's what he does. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, he goes to battle twice against the Philistines. He is protecting the house that the Lord gave him. And this is what husbands and fathers are supposed to do. Right? We're house builders and house protectors. David seeks the Lord's guidance, and the Lord gives him two different answers. And this is really important, because what we do in our circumstances is we say, we, we cry out to God, and God delivers us. 
And the next time that we run into a problem, we think, okay, we know how God got us out of it the last time, so what we're going to do is exactly what we did before. And we presume upon the Lord. But David is a careful man. Here comes the the Philistines, just like they had already come. He defeats them once. And when they come a second time, he doesn't just assume to go out and presume to do the same thing. He stops and he asks the Lord, and the Lord gives him a different answer. At the first time, he said, David, go and attack them and defeat them. Okay, this time, okay, don't, don't front, frontal assault, sneak around behind them and attack them from the rear. And if David had not listened to the Lord and presumed to understand what the Lord wanted him to do, he would have failed. And, and, and this is why in our circumstances, we have to be very careful, even with our sanctified wisdom. Just because you've seen a thing or two, just because you've experienced a thing or two, does not mean you understand what God is doing, nor what he requires of you. David goes very carefully, and when he goes very carefully, he's very successful. Now, the Philistines meet David in what is called the Valley of Rephaim, the Valley of Giants. Okay? Now, this is important because where has David had his capital all this time? In the city of Hebron, the city of giant killers. Now, if we remember from 1 Samuel, what is David? He's a giant killer. So if I I was going to fight a general who had already slayed a giant, who lived in the city of giant slayers, I would not fight him in the valley of giants. I wouldn't do it. You know why? Because the typology is just too sweet for God. I'd be like, how about we fight somewhere else, like the plains of monkeys or something? Like, let's go over there and fight him over there. I mean, the joke's on the Philistines here. It's the last place in the world I want to meet David. So David goes down a second time and whoops him. And he, he defeats them. And he says, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Right? That's what God's judgment is like on the Gentiles. It's like the flood. He washes over them and destroys them. That's why when they hear the sound in the trees, it is the host of heaven going before them. It's the Lord who breaks through them like a flood. It's not David and the Israelites. It's the Lord God fighting his battles. What we see through all of this right? and and this is where it gets very confusing for us sometimes. We think that David is great because David is great. But David is only great because God makes him great. He's only great because he's a tool in God's hands. The Lord builds his house. He defends his house. 2 Samuel 5.10 teaches us that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Okay? When David is going along with the Lord, his house is being built, he is being successful. When he goes it alone and does what's right in his own eyes, he fails. If you're a tool in the Lord's hands, you you will have a meaningful life and and, and there will be success in what you attempt to do. If you go it alone and do it your own way, it will fail. Now, I've gone very quickly through this because all of this is just a collage. All of this is just a bunch of cut-up pieces of other Bible stories almost stapled together to show us a picture of something. It's a collage. Now, what throws a lot of people is the way that they record history in the Bible. They don't do it chronologically. Frankly, chronological history is really boring. There's, it's not a very interesting story, and it's really hard to do. Because if you're going to talk about D-Day, and you're going to talk about everything that happened at 5.15 in the afternoon, uh, the day before D-Day, it's really hard to tell that story. That's not how you tell stories. You tell stories thematically. Now, this story in Chapter 5 is, is thematic. It's history... Um, by motif. It's not history by chronology. And and here's what I mean by that. 
it, it references David's entire reign in, cha- in verses 4 and 5. It says, David reigned for X number of years. It's like they're summarizing what, what, what he did. And then after that, after that moment, verses 4 and 5, everything that happens after that doesn't happen in exactly that order. They just put the, these, these different stories about David together in this way because they're trying to tell us something. For, for, here's a couple of examples of what I mean. David's child Solomon, who's mentioned in verse 14, isn't actually born until 2 Samuel 12, 24. He's not born for a long time. And there's a bunch of stuff that happens before he is. But they're putting that here. They're just summarizing. Oh, when he was in Jerusalem, these are all the kids he had. Similarly, King Hiram, who comes and builds David's house, is also alive when Solomon, David's son, is king. So unless the guy is extremely old, which it doesn't say that he is, uh, they're, they're telling something that happened at the end of David's reign in the middle of David's reign. They put this house-building themes together. Right? He's, they're talking about children that aren't born yet. They're talking about a house that hasn't been built yet because chapter 5 is all about house-building. That's the kind of history it is. Let's, let's take all these stories about house-building and put them in the same chapter. And when we take the details of chapter 5 together, we see the blueprint that God uses to build his kingdom through a household. But, but though God is faithful to David, David is not wholly faithful to God. Even in the greatest of men, David, there is still something wrong. David is, as we have explored, sowing both fruitful seeds and destroying weeds side by side in his garden. He's taking lives, and, and he's doing it before his children. His children see what he's doing, and his children are going to go on and do the same thing. One of his sons is going to rape one of his daughters. Why? Because men take women when they want them. So here he is going out and building the household of God, and inside his own household, they are watching what their father is doing, and it is not good. And it is going to destroy not only them, but a great number of people in Israel. Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 11, it, this is what it says. Right? Now, where did, right? He's just like dad here. Solomon had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. How did he have time to do anything else? And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. The story of mankind apart from God is the story of a man who both built a house that he himself will destroy. That's the story apart from God. Where do his sons learn, right? Where do they learn to be rapists? Where do they learn to have a thousand wives from their father? David tries to build his own house, his own way, just as Adam had done, just as all men do. David's tree is cut down because it is not righteous, right? In, in Psalm 1, it says, uh, the blessed man is like a tree planted by streams of living water. That's what the blessed man is like. That, that is what all men are supposed to be. David <laughs> is going his own way, and so the tree is cut down, it is burned, it is destroyed, and so Yahweh must send a man who will build and defend his house in the proper way, in the fear of the Lord, in obedience to the Lord, wholly devoted to God, rooted and grounded in love. That is what Israel is waiting for. They're waiting for a greater David. They're in exile, and they're thinking, who is going to deliver us? What happened? What happened to our kingdom? What happened to our households? What happened to our temple? 
Now, do you in any way, shape, or form recognize the exiles? Are you wondering what happened, right? We're talking about a post-Christian nation at this point. We're not even talking about an apostate nation. We're talking about as if Christendom has come and gone and gone the way of the dodo. We're talking about broken homes. We're talking about father hunger, left, right, and center. You're looking around this place, and do you ever feel like the Israelites in exile? Well, what is the Lord God going to do? Right? What did he do with David? But David failed because David was rooted and grounded in rot. Well, what he did is he sent his son, his only son, who is rooted and grounded in love. Now, let's look at the life of Jesus and see, right? See what a proper house looks like. See what a healthy tree looks like. The coming of the one whose taproot is not rotten, who will arise and restore David's house forever, is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what it's about, 2 Samuel 5. This is what he's coming to undo. It says in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Jesus is entirely devoted to the Father. He says in John 14, 31, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love him. Right? He he followed Deuteronomy 17. How many wives does the Lord Jesus have? One. Right? And, And how fruitful is he with that one wife? Does he need to apply... And does he need to get more wives? Does he need to acquire Islam now as as also a bride? The Mormons? Does he need more wives? No, imagine the Lord Jesus being like, yeah, here's my wife Christianity, and here's my wife Islam, and here's my wife Mormonism, and and here's the Buddhists down on the end. No, he has one bride. and And look at how fruitful he is. He does it the Lord's way, and who can stop him? He does it the Lord's way, and his household will stand forever. When Jesus builds and defends what God has given him, he does it the way the Lord wants him to. Jesus is not a taker. He's anything but a taker. When Jesus sows seeds, it's not weeds and fruitful seeds together. It's fruitful seeds. That's it. Jesus will end the civil war between Jews and Gentiles, creating a universal brotherhood of man, sons of his father, bone and flesh of one another in Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Jesus gathers his household on Mount Zion, where he is enthroned. Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Where are you right now? Are we in a strip mall in Linwood, really? (laughs) Right? That's what our eyes see. But where are we really? When you enter in here on Sunday morning and we are to gather together and, and, and we are calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus together, we are, we are showing where we are in his house. We are singing to his glory. We are surrounded by the saints throughout time. We are surrounded by angels and festal clothing. Now, why would you leave this and go build in some other way? Right? <laughs> what other people gather together in a room, I love it, and stare at a wall, 
and sing at it. Right? I love it. We're madmen. We're total madmen. But this is how he builds his house. Luther said it. All I did was sit around and drink beer and, and write sermons, and the Lord crushed our enemies. All we do is we come here and we sit in this room and we sing and we pray and we read the words of scripture and, and we faithfully obey him in the way that he, and doing what he told us to do. And through doing that, he is defeating our enemies. But we want to go and do ballot measures. We want to go and do Supreme Court justices. We want, now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't <laughs> spread the gospel into every corner of the world, but how many of us think, oh my gosh, what's going on right now? Let's all gather together in the household of God and sing at the wall. <laughs> Right? We are, we are madmen, and, and what we need to do is embrace that and, and stop trying to fight like the world. Jesus has both Jew and Gentile children. Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, bar- barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is, is all and in all. What does the world want right now? It wants reconciliation, doesn't it? Don't, don't we want reconciliation between the Russians and the Ukrainians? Don't we want reconciliation between the blacks and the whites in the United States? And, and, and are they going about it, right? Is, there's a way to go about it, and there's a way not to go about it. The only unity that man can have is, is being bone and flesh together in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. There is no other way to bring unity between men. The world is surrounding us is full of the same old problems. The same old problems. Brothers hating brothers, killing each other, war, famine, disobedience, men multiplying wives, right? It's called Pornhub. We, we have all the same old problems. Why are we trying to find different solutions? Besides the solutions, the only solutions that work, the only solutions that have only ever worked. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Jesus is unifying mankind before his throne. His throne is what unites us. No matter what tribe, no matter what tongue. It says in verses 18 to 22, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Hiram brought really nice logs for David to build a house. But here Jesus is building a house out of logs of Jews and Gentiles. Right? You're you're the logs. He's, He's... He's brought you in. He's grafted you in. You are now of the household of God. You are now members of Christ. You are the house that he is building. Right? And the more people he brings in, the more he can do in this world. So why are we trying to fix the world in any other way but to bring men to Christ? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 27. Verses 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, your, your relationship with your spouse, is it in disrepair? Are there problems? Is the bottle going to fix it? Is it a pill? Is it a psychiatrist? Right? Is, is Netflix? What's going to fix it? We keep multiplying solutions, like David is multiplying wives. And this is the plan. This, this is the only solution. A man washes his wife with the word of God to present her to himself in splendor. Right? That's what you give her. The word of God. That is what your marriage needs. That is what your household needs. When you're doing that, the household grows up in beauty instead of getting uglier and uglier and uglier and ending up with the kinds of sons that David raises. Now, Jesus, furthermore, isn't just building a beautiful house, isn't just a faithful husband. He's also a dragon slayer. He defends his household. He is a bruisable, head-stomping savior, as I like to say. That's what we're told in Genesis 3.15. That said, right, what does it say in Genesis 3.15? That the son, there will be a greater son that comes, son, son of Eve, that will crush the head of Satan, but that he will, in fact, have his heel bruised. So he's bruisable, but he is a, he's victorious. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, do we know anybody who through, through the fear of death is subject to slavery? Right? I, we can go to Fred Meyer and find about 30 or 40 of them right now. Have you seen these, these people are now going on, online and they're vowing to continue to wear masks even after the mandates go away? Now, why? Why are they doing that? What's our solution? <laughs> what, what, are we, what are we offering the world? What are you, right? And, and, and it's every sphere of life. Are, what ha- kind of house are you building? What kind of tree are you? The Lord Jesus is building a house, and it's not built on fear. It's not built on slavery, right? He is faithful to his bride. He is, he, he is fruitful with his children. He is kind and he is gracious. He is building a house that will stand and last forever. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The triune God makes his home with you. If you love him, how do we know you love him? Because you obey him. 2 Corinthians 6.16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Matthew 7.24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is about what? It's about God's program to overcome his enemies and to bless his people. And how does he do it? Through a household. He builds households, and through those households, he defeats his enemies. Now, is it a household designed any way you want? Right? I mean, this is what I talk about. If the foundation is Jesus, imagine if you had a foundation, but you were building a house bigger than the foundation. 
and, and it was going over the edges of the foundation on every side. What, how is that house going to go? Or many of us, we have a foundation that's Jesus, and all we're doing is building because we're so afraid of the world in one little corner of it. And, and, and our house that we're building isn't even the same shape as the foundation that he's poured. We're like hiding in the corner over here. I'm just going to build a shack. <laughs> what solutions are you trying to use to fix yourself, to fix one another, to fix your household, to fix this world? Right? When God says, go and be fruitful and multiply, are you, by what criteria are you being fruitful? By what criteria right, are you multiplying? Is it just about numbers, or is it about the quality and the fruit? Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. If you want your house to be an extension of his, it requires submission to him. His is the only way to build a house that lasts, for he is the foundation rock, the stronghold. He's the defender. He's the builder. There is no other way. And so what it requires are men who love the wife that God has given them, the way that God said to love them, not the way they want and not the way the world tells you to do it. The households in, in God's kingdom are built through wives submitting to and honoring their husbands, the way that the Lord says to do it, not another way. The way that the kingdom is extending is by us being fruitful and multiplying and raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, not the fear and admonition of Inslee, not in the fear and admonition of the public school, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. There is no other way. Otherwise, sign them up for Satan's camp because that's where they're headed. It doesn't matter how many you have. It matters how you're raising them. Not your way, not the world's way, his way. Now, you're going to work Right? And, and you're conquering this world, right? You have a mission. You're on mission. Are you fighting those battles your way? Or are you seeking the Lord to fight his battles where you are? Because you're, a tr- you're troops that were dropped in a location. God sent you there because there there are enemies to defeat. You either defeat them the way he says to defeat them, or you are destroyed by them. We are all of us constantly looking for all kinds of solutions to fix what's wrong. And there is only one way to fix what's wrong. There is only one house that will stand. There is only one tree that will not be cut down and burned. And you're either grafted into that tree or you're not. The hope that the world has is the Lord Jesus. The hope for your marriage, the hope for your households, the hope for your work, the hope for your mission, the hope for your fruitfulness, all of it, right? The hope is the Lord Jesus. He's the only one who can build anything that lasts. And so why are we building apart from him? Why are we trying to bear fruit apart from him? And, and, and Just like David, are we faithful to him as he is faithful to us? No, say that. Say that out loud. I am not as faithful to you as you are to me. Don't go and hide. Don't go home and despair. Don't go home and hit the, hit the Jack Daniels. Don't go home and light up the pipe. Go home, get on your knees, and say, I am not as faithful to you as you are to me. And because of your faithfulness, I'm telling you that, because I expect to get up from here and to go forth and to obey you now by your strength and your power. 
to do it your way. Right? That's the hope for your marriage. That's the hope for your household. That's the hope for the culture. There is no other way. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this household of which you've made us a part. We thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your faithfulness to us, despite our unfaithfulness to you. Lord, there is nothing that we can do by our own strength. There is no good in us apart from you. And I pray, Lord God, that we would humbly, humbly call upon you to be gracious and merciful to us. If we look upon the one that we pierced, you will fill our lips with cries of mercy. And I pray, Lord God, that you would fill our lips with cries of mercy now, that we would build our homes, that we would be blessed trees planted by streams of living water because of Christ, and that we would know that he is the only solution. Amen.